and welcome to the Market Minds Podcast. Our host is Dario Caldwell. Today, he will be interviewing Tamsin Webster, a pioneer in her career and field. Get ready to have deep conversation and be enlightened. So everyone I come on to that comes on to the podcast, I always ask these two questions. Um, okay. Set the stage. Like one, what things, what things are you most grateful for? And two, in what ways do you feel you can be more generous? Questions. Okay. Um, what am I most grateful for? I am most grateful to have, honestly, to have the partner that I do in my husband. Um, mostly because I think all of us should be so lucky to have somebody who is their champion. Um, and because I think all of us, even in our, you know, it's easy to be confident and, you know, feeling powerful in your strong moments. It's really hard in your not so strong moments. And that's the moment where you need somebody else to say, you know, I believe in you. I see your quality. I have faith. Um, and even when some of those like down moments in business or whatever will happen, I mean, they have effects on the household too, on the household finances yeah. for someone to be able to say, we're good. We've got this. We'll figure it out together. Um, and we're in this together. I'm I'm very grateful for that. I I am sure that I would not be doing what I'm doing right now. I wouldn't have a business of my own. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I did not have the partner that I have in Tom. And oh, there's another question. <laughs> right. You asked me the same okay. time. where could I be more generous? <laughs> uh like, yeah. Well, apparently I could be more generous and thinking about how I could be more generous. Um <laughs> Oh my gosh. Uh, so where, so I think, you know, I, I could be more generous in taking my internal excitement for the people and the ideas and, and the the values that I see in the people around me and whom I'm lucky enough to call friends and colleagues and, and saying that externally. Um, I am so much of an introvert that a lot of times it just never occurs to me to say stuff like outside of my head. So I'll see someone do something amazing and be like, oh, that's amazing. And I'll be like, oh, that's a great idea. And <laughs> I I literally forget to say, you know what? But actually, it feels really nice when someone says that out loud, either to you you or um it's a place that i am trying to be more explicit in my efforts and more focused in my efforts to um to say out loud all the the amazing things that i see um the people that i know and respect it's amazing around me and to help shine a light on them because that always feels nice and they deserve it oh my goodness there's so much you just said Okay. Oh, you froze. I don't know if you, I froze to you too. Oh no, no, I'm here. Am I so? Oh no, you're back. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so much. No, you're back. There's so much in what you just said. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah, I think I'm gonna go this route. So, with this is so interesting. So, how do you feel like this? Your red thread is affected by how you communicate in the space where you were talking about just in your generosity. Like you don't fully all the time get to express out outwardly the things that you function or want to say or want to do to the people around you. Like, how do you think 
that affects like your personal red thread? So, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, in a, in a kind of counterintuitive way, it's very consistent, right? I mean, I spend, yeah, yeah. Um, I spend a lot of intellectual energy in helping figure out for myself and for others, like where the power is in an idea and how to make the case for it and how to make that as clear as it can be to other people so that those points of alignment are explicit and exposed. And so that that alignment can happen faster. Um, and that, frankly, is pretty exhausting work. Um <laughs> because it, it's important to me to get that right on behalf of other people's ideas and, and of my own. Um, and, you know, it's funny, I, I worked for a number of years, three years at Harvard Medical School. And part of what uh, my job there was to help uh, devise the communication strategy behind our fundraising efforts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that had its own challenges because, you know, Harvard needs money. Yeah. Need money. <laughs> right. um, so asking for money for Harvard created its own inherent challenge. But what was particularly interesting is that, of course, a fair number of folks that you ask of any school or university that you ask for money are people who graduated from said school or university. And the same thing was true for Harvard Medical School. And what I discovered working there is that doctors, even though a lot of us have this expectation that they make a lot of money, and they do, um, they really believe in the context of the work that they do, that they are already giving back. And that, uh, and so when you ask them to give more, um, part of them is like, well, I'm wait, wait, I'm already doing my job. Like I'm help, you know, I'm helping the world in the nature of the medical practice that I have. And I am in no way equating what I do with, you know, the great work of talented doctors and physicians, but in, at the same time, um, it, it is the way that is most comfortable for me to help somebody, uh, draw attention to their ideas is to help them strengthen the, the idea itself and how they talk about it so that it draws its own light to it. And I think that is part of why it, it is a, it doesn't occur to me and B it's this extra effort to be like, oh, and oh, by the way this is already a great idea on its own and whatever, but you should also pay attention to this one because it's great. Um, because like I said, it's like very much my approach because of how I'm wired is, um, you know, I'm not an extrovert. I'm not naturally like, you know, hype squad kind of person because yeah. it's just, I tend to operate much more quietly and from the inside. And so to me, it's a, it is a, it's a natural byproduct of how I do the work that I do and why. Um, but it doesn't, that does not absolve me <laughs> of, <laughs> of the generosity that would come from going above and beyond that and kind of helping in, in my own small way to, um, to shine light. Right. So rather than just kind of make it, make something shinier, which is the nature of my work to also shine light on those beautifully shiny ideas and concepts. I love what you said. And it goes right into what I was processing and this question uh, as well. So I noticed like with the red thread, I always see like there's parallel themes. Um, so the first thing I was thinking, is like, okay, where do you find your red thread? Cause I, you're, I watched the, uh, the Ted talk a thousand times. Um, Cause I'm always learning. And that's like one of my top ways of, of developing. Some people would like go sit by a lake or a river and processing. Someone people go um, do other things. But for me, I'm like, I, I learn and adapt and grow 
by watching patterns and um, how things are affected. Uh, so there's always a parallel I see when, when I mm. came to the process of thinking about the red thread. There's this idea of disruption. And mm -hmm. if I think about technology, overnight technology can shift just like that. Um, but then you have the archaic systems of how we function as people. So uh, even when I think about when you just talked about like the doctors are like, hey, like this is how we're giving back. Things are disrupted to uh, in a certain way. It's like, hey, we, we need to financially give to do things in this way. But uh, humans or people are like, this is how we do this. Yeah. Um, and it may take a while <laughs> for people to yes. adapt and adjust. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is why, this is why I do, I mean, this is why I'm so fascinated by humans, first of all, and this is why I do the work yeah. that I do the way that I do it, because I am deeply interested in what is necessary to create a long-term shift in, think, in somebody's thinking or behavior. Uh, because personally, I'm just not a fan of having to do things more than once. Um, so I'd rather do something right, quote unquote, the first time. In other words, if I'm attempting to get someone to think or do something new and different, I I don't want to have to keep doing it. Like, I don't want to do anything that invokes buyer's remorse. I don't want to do anything that invokes any feelings of being manipulated, um, which yeah. means it takes a lot of the traditional persuasion and influence advice out of the out of the running because you know, a lot of that is about momentary manipulation or, um, you know, kind of activating people's fear of missing out or, you know, um, anchoring a message in pain, mental or otherwise, or yeah. just basically saying the equivalent of because I said so. And none of that, it may drive action, but I don't think it drives sustained action. It doesn't, in my mind, most of the time drive, drive long-term change. And so it was, a, so this morning as I was walking my dog, Walnut, he's a retired racing ground, um, <laughs> whom I love. Um, it was, a, it was occurring to me, like a, an idea for a blog post started to come into my mind because for whatever reason, I was reminded by something that our trainer said to us like early in getting to know Walnut. Um, now I mentioned he was a retired racing greyhound. Uh, <laughs> and the thing to understand about them is that, um, you know, they spend the first however many years of their lives on a track and they don't yeah. generally know how to be a pet. And so when you adopt one of these dogs, there's a fair amount of adjusting where you actually have to teach them. I mean, they're going to, the dog's going to dog, right? But you have to teach mm -hmm. them to be a pet. They've never known how to do that. They've, they've, they've only really known what it's like to be a dog that works in, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember one of the things that she said to me, she's like, really, there's four things that, that, there's just really four mindsets of a dog and the thing that you have to understand that affects their behavior. One is, you know, the things that they, there's kind of two things that they want to do and two things they don't want to do. And if you just keep that in mind and operate within that, you're always going to be, you and your dog are always going to be in a good spot. And there were these things. One, top of the list always that a dog is going to want to keep doing something that it wants to do, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, I'm having fun. I'm playing with my friends. I want to keep doing this, right? That's an easy yeah. thing. The second most like easy thing to accomplish is to help them stop doing something that they want to stop doing. In other words, this is a scary environment. I'm uncomfortable here. Get me out. Right. Those are the two situations where it's kind of the easiest, like where if you can help your dog keep doing something that they want to do or stop doing something they don't want to do, yeah. you're in a good spot. Uh... This, by the way. Is how humans work too. Yeah. Um, and then the <laughs> yeah. other two things, you know, and so, and so it's like, 
And then, and then the other two things, if you think about it this way, is actually where we spend most of our time trying to persuade, which is, you know, the two most difficult things to get a dog to do is to get them to stop doing something that they want to do. I'm having fun, mom. I don't want to leave these other dogs right now. Don't make me go away because this is fun. Don't make me do that. That's a really hard thing to do, right? In order to do that, what do you have to do? You have to use either like force, you have to lure them away or distract them or give them something that they consider to be equally valuable to the thing that you're asking them to give up. True. Yeah. Right. So again, these are, there's lessons of plenty here for for humans. Um, Or the other thing that's very difficult is to get them to start doing something that they don't want to do. Like, I don't want to get in the bathtub because I do not want to have a bath right now. Like, I don't <laughs> yeah. I don't want to do this. So, again, you have to do all this extra external stuff and something create these equivalencies to make them want to do things or even they don't they'll never want to. But they're just there'll be enough of a trade off. Um, and again, it was just occurring to me as I was walking around this morning is that we could learn a lot right from from that piece of it. And when it comes to you know, seeing patterns and how do you um, kind of use the red thread or any of these concepts to disrupt, keeping in mind some of those basic concepts of, you know what, the more that you can present a disruption, which is, I'm asking you to do something different in such a way that it feels like, even if it isn't actually, so it feels like either continuing to do something I already want to do, yeah. Or so that feels like stopping doing something you don't want to do. That is some of the, the, you know, that is your smoothest path to not just persuasion, but disruption, right? Like that actually yeah. sticks. So these are the kinds of things to think about. And this is what occurs to me on my dog walks. But again, I just, <laughs> I think that's, you know, you really think yeah. about it that way. It's just like, you know, yes, it's good advice for a dog, but when it comes to, motivation and when it comes to disruption it really is kind of the our most animalistic brains take over and we'd like to think that our fellow humans are more rational than that but really when it comes down to it we just you know we just want to keep playing with the dog friends and we don't want to have to take a bath if we don't want to that's so true (laughs) that's so funny putting putting it in that perspective is very accurate it's just so funny hearing it like from the aspects of like dogs and people and human, like it's mammals. It's no, I yeah. honestly can tell you today, spending all the time that I have doing all the things that I've done over my life. It really just does come, comes down to that. Is yeah. it people just want to keep doing the stuff they want to do. They want to stop doing the stuff they don't want to do. And everything else is a trade-off, right? Yeah, so, you're right. And if, yeah. and if your message, whatever it might be, is essentially in one of those trade-off categories of getting someone to start doing something that they don't want to do or to stop doing something that they do want to do, you're already at a level of difficulty that that will make your message hard. And so that's why so much of my philosophy of how do you frame even long-term change is from those perspectives of, well, let's just make it part of like stopping doing something they don't want to do and keeping doing something they do. Um, you know, so, cause ultimately the red thread is about building a, you know, I've said, I say this in the book, but I say that it's yeah. about building a story that someone will tell themselves. Mm-hmm. And what that means is the best way to build one of those kinds of stories is that essentially you're building an argument that someone would have in there, like the rationale that someone's going to make in their mind about why they would do something, yeah. but you're building it on things that they're already bought into on things that they already agree with. In other words, you know, if you say that you're 
solution, your product, your offering, it, you know, is an answer to a question. Well, make it an answer to a question they already want an answer for and don't have one, right? Yeah. Because they're already that's already something they want. It's already like it's like I want to keep playing with my friends. I want to find an answer to this. Great. Attach it to that. And mm -hmm. then your argument for it, instead of saying, hey, you know, it's cheaper, it's whatever, which is fine. No, again, base it on things that they already agree with, and you're much more likely to get it to work. So and not in a manipulative way, in a way that's actually true to both you and them. Yeah, I I feel like what you do, I would consider it's my own personal categories that I have for people that I've been studying and, and watching and just learning from generally. But I feel like you do what I call in the category of legacy work because you, you're literally affecting change one person at a time in your daily life, consistently living out these themes and these processes. But there's also uh, the today we have the mediums of social media and different platforms where you can have your uh, your thoughts and uh, the structure out there for people to to actually be invited into those changes, uh, or to be have her feathers ruffled, or the idea, the concept to be a seed planted. Like, hey, this is a one for one. If you trade this off, this actually is greater value. Uh, so yeah. it leads me like to the next question, which is, so I had the original question like about attention spans and for audiences shrinking. But now that you even communicate this, I'm wondering if that is even true, if the audiences, uh, I attention spans are shrinking or they're just leaving one concept and being, being drawn over to another place. Yeah, I mean, I think there's really no no verifiable research that I have seen that, that supports the shrinking attention span i mean i think um Clever. and i love your frame on it which is that maybe it's just that we're maybe it's just that we're more distractible which is actually a little bit different and you know yeah. I, you know my husband for instance has long said that we have we have endless ability to focus on things that that actually capture our attention to wit uh you know last time you binged a tv series or whatever how long did you yeah. sit watching that one thing right so we are very capable of spending mm -hmm. a lot of time with something that we want to spend time with we're back to the dog park right like it's yeah. if we just if it's something that we want to do we want to keep doing it so anything that I, in my mind looks like the like lack of attention span means that maybe just our standards for what we want to do and what captures our attention have gone up um or that there's just so much more competition that again it's it it is very difficult i think sometimes to um particularly if you're just putting out stuff that actually isn't that different or isn't that yeah doesn't have that kind of weight behind it it isn't curiosity inducing not just because it's different because it's like it not just because it's different than you know in some kind of like gimmicky way i mean i think that the bar we've just got a really high bar now about what is actually substantively a a, a change in approach or an unusual way to look at something i just think that our you know with the volume of information that we're presented with all the time yeah, I think all of us to some extent are the kind of pattern, you know, have pattern recognition the way that you talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that what that's done is that volume of information that's come out has just meant that our bar for what is different 
um, has gone higher and higher and higher just because we have, we have exposure to more stuff. And the more stuff you get, the more you, the more stuff that fills out that fat of the bell curve, you're like, same, 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 whoa, that's different. And then, you know, and sometimes you're going to go, whoa, that's different. And then you're like, oh, but that's, there's actually, that was interesting, but there's not enough there, there, there's nothing after that. So I'm going to, okay, fine, fine, fine. And then like same, 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 same. And then every now and then there's going to be something you're like, no, that actually is different. That, that is substantively different. That approach is different. They're doing mm-hmm. something different and there's like real meat behind it. There's real, you know, intellectual weight is something I term I used with somebody else earlier today um, behind it. And then that's the stuff that again, if it's, if it's consistent with something that you want to be doing, like it helps you achieve a goal or it helps you solve a persistent problem. Again, stop doing something you want to stop doing. Yeah. Um, you will stay engaged with it until either it solves your problem, right? Or yeah. um, or you discover, or, you know, or you discover that it won't and you move to something else. So to me, it's just a clarion call to not just throw up your ha- hands and go, oh, let's just shorten everything and make it this thin. I'm like, actually, no, that makes it worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, to me, it's the, it's it's the call to do better work. Uh, and what I mean by better work is really be thoughtful about and knowledgeable about what's already out there. How, what is what? How do how do we look at that whatever it is differently, and how can we articulate that difference in such a way that other people can quickly and clearly understand it? Because you know, if it's a thought I've been having a lot in the last week or so. Yeah. Um, but I'm the more I the more I th- have been thinking about it and talking about it, the more that I believe it's true. And that is that our approach, like our outlook on the world, is truly the ownable, only ownable thing that we've got. Mm. Right. Like n- people, other people can do what you do. They may even have very similar to like they may have a very yeah. si- similar solution or whatever, but your outlook that produced why you do that thing in that particular way, nobody can reproduce. Absolutely not. So if, if our outlook is truly the only ownable thing, what can we do to make that outlook m- more understandable to people yeah. so that they can go, yes, that's really interesting. And, and I understand it and I align with it and I see what you're doing it's consistent with my values and beliefs as well it's going to solve my problem tell me more and i think if you can find can do that then people the depths of people's curiosity is generally unendless it's just generally endless you know there's just there's not there's not a bottom to it this makes so much sense i I feel like um and i'm not just trying to uh, attribute a, a cornucopia a cornucopia of compliments here but there there literally there was i love the cornucopia. That's that's a. I compliment you on that word. That's a good. Yeah. Word. <laughs> but, there's, um, but there's like a. Uh, I think that's one of the things I seen a couple of years ago. You stood out amongst all the. Oh my goodness! I don't know how many TED talks I watched uh, through the years. Uh, how many speeches, uh, locally, globally, and otherwise. But there was something unique about um, the red thread. Obviously, I'm a. I'm a really nerd out on history and patterns and things like that so the red thread caught my attention immediately uh yeah at the same time it was like uh, a moment of uh vulnerability you were sharing up there sharing your story um and just i think 
what was interesting too about it was not just uh it wasn't just one of those moments where you just shared like hey these are three things from history these are this is one cool fact about me and this is how all these things affect you <laughs> it was uh yeah. it was more thought-provoking and you can tell the intentionality in the way you communicate it that you lived it and there's mm-hmm. there's a distinct difference i i feel um of people who just communicate things, uh, verbally repeat things, uh, even believe themselves after speaking 12 days in the mirror after affirmations, but they haven't taken, it hasn't taken root yet. So there's a, there's a difference from someone who's living it versus someone who's just communicating it. And you can yeah. see that. And um, the style that you do. I mean, I totally you, agree with that. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. You're speaking my language. And the thing I'll add to that, is that I believe that everyone has has already has that power in them. You know, I just feel mm-hmm. like we spend so much time um, in invention processes, right? And people wow. trying yes. to find the thing and go get the thing and, you know, invent the thing that's going to be whatever. And to me, the most powerful thing you can do is more of an excavation process. What do you already have that's powerful? Because you already are living something, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And you can either live it and say, you know, and maybe it's not having the results that you want. And there's, you know, and that could be a framing issue that could be, there could be, it could be very complicated. I'm not in any way saying like, hey, just, you know, reframe it and it'll all be great. (laughs) Um. But what I am saying is, is that the, the goes back to this outlook piece, like how, how you see the world drives what you do in it. And that is based on really, uh, you know, literally primal beliefs. There's this fascinating research from a uh, 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 researcher named Jared Clifton out of University of Pennsylvania. And those beliefs, you know, we, and a lot of times they're unconscious. Um, we yeah. have developed such strong muscles, metaphorical or otherwise, following those beliefs and and living out how we see the world that to me, like to not understand which of those muscles we've built um, is such an overlooked opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think a lot of times, again, in that like, oh, when people say you should have this, or you should do that you know, what they're essentially asking you is go build new muscles. Well, those are the weakest muscles. Like, why are you doing that? Like, you've got really strong ones. Like, you know, so you can look at someone who, I remember one time I'm seeing um, kind of this really great reframing of like qualities of children, for instance. And you can say that a kid that is really focused on fairness is just, you know, unrealistic or whatever, or this is, this is a child that has a strong bent towards justice. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. Okay. How do we, okay. If you, if you, if you kind of appreciate it for the strength that something has built or difficulty, you have built skills with that and you can continue to deploy them in one way or you can choose to deploy them in other but i'm going to always agree that the 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 muscles and the strengths and the skills that you've already built are always going to be a much more solid ground to build on than something that you haven't yet which doesn't mean stop growing oh my gosh no i mean i am oh my gosh (laughs) growth is and learning is deeply important to me yeah but um, you know, the thing that I, it's a, you know, a phrase I developed a long time ago when I was, you know, still moonlighting as a Weight Watchers leader is that, um, for me, the biggest leaps start from the surest ground, 
right? Mm-hmm. So even if you are trying to make a big change, that the the strongest place to start from is the most stable, which is what are the beliefs that don't change? What are your values that don't change? What are the skills that you've built? What are the strengths that you have? Um, not the ones that you need to go find yeah. because you think somehow that'll be where it is. No, 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 no. What do you have now that, that, that you can coalesce into a new and powerful way um, and, and put that out there. And yeah, there's going to be other things you need to develop and adapt and whatever over time. Um, but to me, that is, that perspective has proved to be equally true uh, both for individual, as true as it is for individuals, as it is for organizations and vice versa. Um, that anytime an organization tries to be something that's not um, mm-hmm. fundamentally not yeah. something that they're fundamentally not. And it just never works over time because that's just not who any of us are. Um, so yeah, it's, to me, I'm a real believer in, in understanding what you're already living and finding the power in that. It's such a, I feel like it's a, a journey <laughs> I've seen. And, uh, in my earlier years going through a process of going out and, uh, I was, as a growing up, I was always excited and focused on being a neurosurgeon. So I was just like, this is what I'm gonna do. Nice. And uh, it's been a long, it was a long journey. Um, it was such an interesting process. But with that, I was just like, okay, let me just go study. Let me go read um, just all the information and who's who's the best surgeons, like who are the best neurologists? What does the history look like? What is the psychology, the emotional aspect of just went into this deep dive as yeah. nine years old. Hilarious, but like just at nine. Oh my gosh, know? that's amazing! I it's love that. And you, but you've never, you've never shaken your love for that stuff. That's amazing. See, that's no, what I'm talking about. There, the emotional, the psychology, the patterns, all yeah. the things are just it just carried with me. But it wasn't until uh, until like later on in life that I realized, like, oh my gosh, I've been doing all this out here, but like, let me process why I was pursuing these things. So even. Mm externally going after these things studying uh going really hard certifications all these amazing things um until like a shift happened and that's when i the shift happened when i actually sat in the room and just processed uh just all these patterns that all these values uh what i perceived was what value out here is different from actually understanding and taking the value advantage of the value that uh, that was in internal that I had to excavate and, and dust things off. And it's it's really interesting to be pursuing. And I'm, I'm lucky. I'm grateful because uh, I got that early. Some people don't haven't have yet to do it at 60, uh, 50 years old. They're just now going back after a career of being unsatisfied uh, and unfulfilled Um uh, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it may be, until they go back and process and start to dust off almost like an archaeologist, an, an internal archaeologist, um, and dust off the things that they had inside of them the whole time. And then they begin to have clarity. And I'm glad now because versus having like 20 to 30 years of living through with that understanding, that value, I have much more time now. Um, so how do you how do you lead people like you personally uh, and the, your company? Because I know it's in it's in it's a a branch off of who you are. Uh, yeah. How do you feel like 
you can find ways or you you've already found ways to allow people to uh, be comfortable with that internal excavation uh, to and then extract that to produce, you know, value in life. Yeah, I mean, I think generally the comfort piece comes from, I mean, I think as it does with a lot of things, people going, oh, you know, oh, it's a process, right? Like I, I, yeah. I am definitely for people who like like a process. I love a process. Um, <laughs> I love a framework. Um, and so I think for certain types of people, uh, having a process to follow makes it immediately more comfortable, right? And having a process to, you know, that's one element. Now I'll be very clear. Like there's some folks that, that a process is deeply uncomfortable for them. Yeah. They're probably not great fits for my process. Um, <laughs> uh, second, like for the, for the process people, you know, there's also this other layer of, it isn't just something I've pulled out of the air. Like there's a reason why the steps are what they are. And they're, they're yeah. very rooted in neuroscience and cognitive science and mm-hmm. you know psychology and all sorts of stuff um behavioral economics and that kind of thing um so each of the steps is very intentional and purposeful and backed up like each eight ways to sundays like about why it's there why i'm doing it this way what, you know that everything that i use is you know i think the oldest approach is like millennia old because some of the things that i do go all the way back to aristotle um you know, and some of it's newer because it's based on yeah. like, you know, Jerry Clifton's research of, you know, five years ago. So, um, and still developing. So that's, that's part of it. And then the, the extraction piece is, you know, I, I've always done this work, you know, because again, the, the main focus of my work is on, on, on leaders building buy-in for large scale change. Um, so that's a lot of organizations. That's a lot of uh, yeah. purpose-driven organizations, impact-driven organizations, and a lot of times it's very technical, right? Because if we're talking about large-scale change, we're oftentimes yeah. talking about market, society, even planetary-level change with things like decarbonization and climate tech and that kind of good stuff. Um, and so what I've found over time is that it is to ask what seem very logical questions, right? Um uh, and and they are, but they are logical questions that that manage to pull out the kind of internal logic of emotion that we've got going on in our mm. minds, right? So, yeah, um, you know, the first substantive step of all my work with any client is to is to surface, as I like to put it, the audience question that their idea or their offering exists to answer. Um, so, why is it there? Um, and and I and I say audience question in a very specific way because I don't mean what real problem does it solve. Yeah. That's important, but that's actually not that's actually not in my mind the first most important thing. The first most important thing is to get yourself into the awareness set of your ideal audience in the first place. And the only way you can do that is if you say, You have this question, I answer this question. Yeah. And yeah. and so that ends up being you know, other than the discomfort that people feel because they've we've we've gotten, I think, some bad advice about like what's the unknown problem that you saw. Um, again, that comes into play. Yeah. But not first. Um, that once people go, oh, okay, well, I we know people are, you know, worried about you know leaving a you know a a, a planet for their kids, or they are mm-hmm. trying to improve operations efficiencies or they're trying to um, ensure a standard of uh, care or of water quality or whatever yeah and our, our idea or our product or this change will help that great like that's and then and then you say 
And what is your answer <laughs> to that question? Um, and, you know, oftentimes that's going to be something like, you know, a, a product or a service or an offering. Um, and then I love to give the example on that of saying, okay, well, that's like saying in the answer to the audience question, how can I take my music with me? You know, that's the equivalent of, you know, of, of, of Steve Jobs just saying, get an iPod like 22 years ago. Now it's yeah. a different answer, but right. Like 22 years ago, it was like, well, we've got it. We've got something to answer that question. It's an iPod. And for some people that was enough, right. Just to go, Oh, yeah. it's Steve jobs. It's Apple. Here's a thing. I like music. Great. Let me try it. But for a lot of people, like they needed a little bit more information than that. And so do most humans, right? So yeah. where I typically go next with folks is to say, well, remember what Steve jobs did when he first sold that he said it was a thousand songs in your pocket. Uh -huh. And so even though this was a very technical, very sophisticated, very complicated piece of machinery that had a branded name, he didn't spend his time on that. He spent his time on kind of these two foundational elements that made this solution, as I like to say, it unexpectedly obvious. Because uh -huh. for someone who wants to take their music with them, well, a thousand songs, suddenly it went from going album by album to taking, or even just part of your music library, whatever part of your music library would fit in the sun visor of your car, like to like your entire music library. And the yeah. pocket size meant that it could go more places, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just okay, I can take my music with me in a car or with Walkman, I can, you know, take it with me, whatever, or with my, with my, my boom box or whatever, I can take it here. Like it was, it was tiny. And so based on those elements, without explaining any of the technical stuff, he was able to make the case that, you know, because we filled in the story in our heads of like thousand songs, more is more, pocket size, less is more. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's what we do. So I bring all this back by saying the, I believe that every idea has that equivalent of a thousand songs in a pocket in it. And that's the work, because if you don't have those two pieces, um, it's not differentiated or it's not simple enough for everybody to understand. Um, and so that's the discipline. And so by when I'm working with companies, like it's, it is the, is the apparent simplicity of the process. What yeah. is the question? What's your answer? What are those two essential elements and what are the bedrock beliefs that explain why those elements must be there um, that I think makes what otherwise would be this kind of could be a very like woo woo process feel very uh, straightforward for folks. And yet the answer, what comes back out is a very rational thing. It's like, well, because more is more we're bringing a whole library and because less is more pocket size is important. Well, that's why mm -hmm. if the best, like in our mind, we designed the iPod to be the best way to take your music with you because thousands of songs in your pocket. Awesome. Yeah. that I think that kind of like, no, not kind of, it definitely does. It, it goes back to something you, I think talk about in the book uh, about trust and communication. Uh, and even like uh, just, that that phrasing that that Steve even used, Steve Jobs used uh, about a, a thousand songs in your pocket. It, it connected um, and built trust based off the emotion. And people were like processing, "Well, I don't have to do that anymore." Thinking about how I make it's that one for one you were talking about, like that trade off. So, uh, how do you see like when you're mapping things out with companies? So you're in there with corporations, with um, different leaders. 
Uh, and you're talking, you're not talking about doing rowboats. You're you're engaging with leaders that are like steering ships. <laughs> so essentially, like a whole organization. Yeah. Uh, that's what, those are who I love. Yeah, I mean, I'll, <laughs> I'll work on a rowboat, but yeah, it's ships are fun too. <laughs> so, so how do you feel like uh, you incorporate like strategic? Um, I want to say strategic or emotional mapping with them uh, to be able to convey with the the whole ship. This is how we do this. And this is uh, essentially why we're going this course. Yeah. So I have a bit of a, I think what appears to be a controversial or at least counterintuitive stance to this. And that is that I never try to know it's possible truly. And B, I think it can even if it is possible i like to avoid it because i think it can't trouble with that because again i am for long-term change and you mm-hmm. i have i have yet to see an instance where you can manipulate somebody into long-term change um yeah that can only come from with within themselves so um when it comes to emotion the thing you know i where I base my approach on is, frankly, from the the, the well-proven theory at this point of cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. which talks about how our our feelings are more often than not a product of our thoughts. I mean, our, our sustained feelings. Now, obviously, you know, something jumps out. A good friend of mine was like, well, what about if something jumps out from you from a bush and like you're scared? Well, yeah, okay. That's that's instinctive and that's whatever. If you remain yeah. scared after that, like it's because something has continued in your in your mind. And that generally when we're talking about business, um, we are not talking about a loud noise or something like that. We are talking right. about feelings that have come as a product of a thought of 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 concepts of beliefs of values mm-hmm. that we've articulated in in a way um whether those are explicit or not and so generally what i have found is that back to walnut and the and the and my theory of you know animal motivation um is i'm gonna that... name this episode walnut i'm gonna name it. <laughs> <laughs> walnut's walking wisdom um <laughs> That's awesome. uh that um what I, is that fundamentally if things get us what we want them to do what we if things deliver on what we want in a way that feels aligned with who we are or who we see ourselves to be or who we want to be we feel good about that and if things don't get us what we want or don't align with who we are we feel bad about that and mm-hmm. and I'm saying that really broadly because the good can sound like happy, thrilled, excited, hopeful, yeah. joyful, whatever. And bad can feel like despair and anxiety and frustration and anger and whatever. So, but generally that is true. Like if something is, guess us what we want in a way that we are aligned with, happy emotions. If it doesn't get us what we want in a way that we are not aligned with, sad emotions. So by... If we just look at kind of the basic kind of existential case for a new product or disruption or something like that, yeah. if you can make that case in a way that delivers on something that people want in a way that they are inherently aligned with, they're going to be excited and happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> and if it doesn't, they're not going to be. 
And if you want to get all storytelling about it, right, and this is where storytelling comes in, you can say, you you know, this is where you just enter a little bit more information in there and you're still going to get that arc of excitement, despair, excitement, despair, excitement, mm -hmm. despair, which can be so helpful in storytelling. But again, not in a fundamentally manipulative way, just as a product of how we process information, because here's how it works. You start off by saying, here's something that you want, right? Yes. And if you got this, all these things would be happening. Yes, happy emotions. But everything you're trying now doesn't work, right? Yeah, no, it doesn't. Sad emotions, blah, 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 blah. And yeah. then you can say, but you know what? There's a reason why that is. Oh, hope, back to happy emotions. Uh, and it's because we've been focused on these things instead of these things. Ooh, sad emotions because ooh, I was, you know, bad. Okay, but you did give me an indication of where we could go. And then you say, but not only that, there's this other thing that's true. Oh, that's true. I agree with that too. Hope, 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 hope. And then if all that comes together, there's a solution. And there you're like, now here's a solution that delivers on something that I want, that aligns with things that I agree with, that solves for that discomfort that I had right there because of what I was doing wasn't getting me what I wanted, but this does put it all together. Happy, happy, happy. And then as long as you don't screw it up after that, right? You get someone to agree in principle, right? With this approach, then the next pieces that can play into that emotion or do they feel confident enough in actually how to do that for it to work, right? So that's when you have yeah. to look at things like simplicity and cost benefit and, you know, I like to call it the effort to outcome ratio, um, you know, all that stuff. But if you just, it's kind of like in my, my experiences, if you just give people information, Mm -hmm. And then the, then the emotions will take care of themselves and the, and, and your job as a communicator around a change that you're trying to make should be just to give the information. It should not be to evoke the emotions because as soon as you try to go for that, that's when you can go into really ethically murky waters. And mm. ultimately you might be laying the seeds for the undoing of the change that you want to make. And why do that? Because I, again, I'd rather just do something once rather yeah. <laughs> than do it multiple yeah, times. I, mean, I think this is, so I, I see you as not just like a communication expert, but an observational expert. Um, I don't know how you can be one without the other, frankly. I mean, yeah, because if you're yeah. trying to, you know, I mean, I think that Unfortunately, some well, I do know how you can be one without <laughs> yeah. the other, actually, because you can, again, you can focus on what to say to like get people to feel a thing in a certain yeah. way you can focus on what you can say to people to get them to do something in a certain moment um and i just i just gotta say like i am just fundamentally not comfortable with that and so mm. i even though some of that stuff works um, on yeah. its own, if that's the only reason why you're doing it, I cannot support it. But if you can back in, you know, some of these things that are, that are useful understandings of how communication works with kind of what I consider to be a, an ethically sound core, well, then you yeah. can make that even more powerful um, because just as a small example, you know, so you know, one of my favorite books is a book by an author named Tim David, and it's a book called Magic Words. And it's amazing. It's a book, it's seven different words, and he's really just focused on these words. And and it's, you know, it's main, it's meant for persuasion and influence. And, you know, one of them, for example, is the word but. Um, and what Tim points out is that in any phrase where the word but, B-U-T, shows up, that our brains tend to ignore and forget anything that happened before the but. Yeah. So if somebody says to you, hey, can you, um, 
you know, let's just take an example from today. Like someone was like, hey, we'd really love you to come speak at our um, event and we probably don't have the budget, but we wanted to reach out to you anyway. I could say, I would love to, but my rate is this. At which point they would go, the, the information they'll retain is, but the rate is. Um, now, if I wanted to clearly say that my answer is no and I'm not interested in negotiating, I would leave it framed that way. But if I could flip it and say, well, typically my rate is this, but I would really love to talk to you about what we can do, uh, but I would love to do it. Again, the whole nothing, the totally. information in that has not changed. Like the same two things are saying true, and except the feeling that that person is getting is a very different feeling. Yeah. And, you know, for me, the way that I, the standard I try to hold myself to, you know, is, 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 you know, be useful, be thoughtful, be passionate, be kind. And so I think that for instance, if you're giving bad news to somebody, Hey, I, you know, I can't do that date, but I would have loved to like, it's the same information and I'm just flipping it in such a way again, not to be manipulative, but to like, but actually to be more consistent with who I am and who I want to be for that person. Now, just to do that so that if you were to do it, for instance, and to say, well, there's a lifetime contract, but if you sign up today, I'll give you a discount with the intention of getting someone to not pay as much attention to this thing that's mm-hmm. actually not in their favor because it surged because it was in front of the butt that I have a problem with. Yeah. Right? So this is what I mean by like, I think that's why I say like, you can be a communication expert without being an observational one, because you can say, Oh, you know what? If you manipulate these words this way, you can get people to do Mm -hmm. this. And I just like, all right. And the fact that as an observer of what needs to be present to create long-term change, um, you can see the value in certain of those things and see how to apply them, but see how to apply them in a certain way that is not, that is consistent with those goals for long-term change rather than, you know, manipulative and ultimately works against them. So a little yeah. bit of a soapbox, but I think it's an important one. No, I hundred percent think it's important because some people use these, uh, these skills for unethically sound uh, ideas or things that they want to create for themselves or to create a, uh, an environment that they desire that is not healthy. So Thankfully, yeah. you're- and I think again, if your if your goals are short term, and if your intention is short term, mm-hmm. or if you're wired in such a way that that's that's okay with you, then that's okay with you. I I can't, you yeah. know, like I said, I'm not I'm not for everybody, no, nor is my approach. Um, but it just struck me that it was just there's not enough information out there about how to how to. Again, I even hate the words persuasion influence because I don't even. Yeah. When I say about how to persuade someone to do something, like, again, the connotation there is to get them to do something that they wouldn't otherwise have done. And for me, it's about, that's why for me, it's much more about, about essentially stating your case. Like, let me just tell you my case based on, and I'm going to, I'm going to construct it based on what I believe we share and what I honestly believe this does for you. And if, and if you want this thing, and if you believe these things as I do, well, then we've got a basis for moving forward. Um, But I also think making your case like that saves you a lot of time because, you know, that first question, I sometimes call it the qualifying question, because if somebody isn't asking that question, that your idea or your offering exists to answer, they're not your people full stop, right? Like, and they just, 
So why waste your time? Or once you've made your case based on kind of like, again, these bedrock principles, if you don't believe that it's fundamentally better to take your whole music library with you more than just six albums, well, then the iPod wasn't going to be for you. And if it didn't matter to you, like what size something was, and again, then it wasn't going to be your thing. And if you just didn't like Apple, it wasn't going to be your thing, right? So, but the faster, in my mind, let's just, everybody's got too many important things to think about. Back to our conversation about all the information we're dealing with. Can we just get to the point a little bit faster? Just give everybody the information they need to decide on their own whether or not this thing is for them or not. Because I believe people are honest enough and intelligent enough to figure it out for themselves. And so let's let's honor our fellow humans that way. And and if and if you don't believe that, and if you think that that gap in intelligence or whatever it represents an opportunity for you, fine. That's how that's how you can do your business. And yeah. I'm I'm gonna do it my way. <laughs> and I, yeah. you know, and because that's what uh, that's all any of us ever do anyway, right? Yeah. So yeah. again, it just allows us to be much clearer on why we do what we do the way that we do it. So true. Yeah. Uh, I was, first off, I just love, before I ask this question, I love the, your authenticity. It's just, uh, it's just so great. It's refreshing. Uh, so with the... With I, just the I mean, the thing is like, I just don't see the point in being anything else. Again, like I'm just going to yeah. put it out on the table because it's like, here it is. This is what it is. If you agree, let's keep talking. If you don't, that's fine. We can agree to disagree. You're just, we're just not going to, we're just not going to work together. Like, yeah, it's, that's fine. Real, it's, yeah. fine. it's fine. Oh yeah. my goodness. So I would say with, with all these complexities and all the layers, like what, what if, uh, I'm rephrasing this question I have written because all these, the whole context shifted and you answer like questions on every other area without even me asking <laughs> just, um, i don't know so, if that's a good thing or a bad thing but whatever no, it's good. i'm it's glad good. i covered all the topics yeah, yeah. so i think uh all the complexities and um all the processes that you have gone through helping companies leaders businesses and otherwise walnut where 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 you did make an appearance by the way i don't know I saw, I saw her. oh no you can't quite he's not quite no, no there's this there's this back end you can see there it he is, there he is there he is yeah uh like what what ways have you seen like the evolution of tamsin in this process oh um i think what you just actually the compliment you just paid has probably been the biggest one which is um and I don't know if it's just age or experience or just lack of patience, um, but the evolution has really been from, you know, I, I would say some form of what do I need to say and how do I need to say it in order for you to like me in order to say to, to, a, to a point of saying, actually, you know what, listen, as long as I am clear on what I'm about and whatever, and then let me be clear about that and who I am and how I am and whatever. And if you, if, as long as I'm true to that, if if you like that great and if you don't you're not my people i think that's been the biggest evolution it's just understanding that nobody is for everyone um and i'm certainly not and that and that you know we as humans as as beautiful complicated 
people as we are, that even at that very primal belief, as I was talking about before, we sometimes just see the world very differently. And it doesn't actually, one of the things that my husband often says to me is like, is it wrong or is it different? And, um, you know, I think a lot of times it's just different when it comes to, when it comes to these kind of core beliefs and how we see the world. And I think that that understanding of choosing to see things is just different and not wrong um um and just being able to say listen you know as long as i'm clear with you about what i care about and why and it's coming from a really honest place where i've done the work to really say why am i doing this this way and here's why and that comes with this kind of automatic confidence not you know not any kind of bravado or anything of that of just saying I know who this is for. I know what problem it solves. I know what the answer is. I know why I believe that the answer. And I've articulated it in this way. And once I've done that in a way that I feel is the best of my ability, to get to a point where to be able to comfortable with that and just say, hey, again, you're either with me or you're not. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay if you're not. Like that's been the biggest evolution. That's awesome. Okay. And this is this is the last question um on the podcast because i have many others um (laughs) so if you were to leave um if today was like the last the last day and you had to make a a last impact statement what would be your what would be the last statement you would leave or question with the world a question or what was what so it could either be a statement or a question what would be the last statement or question you would leave uh, to the world and to your family? Um, you know, that's honest. I mean, it, it it is my own personal mantra. I think I said it briefly, you know, quickly earlier, but honestly, the last thing I would say is uh, be useful, be thoughtful, be passionate, and most importantly, be kind. Um, each of those is is can be fairly easy to do individually, but to strive to be all four at the same time especially the last one, that's the key. And I think if we just all spent a little bit more time trying to be useful to one another, to, to, um, to be thoughtful about how, what we do affects other people and what, how it can roll out to be passionate about those things that we care about, but most of all, to be kind to other people, um, and to ourselves, uh, I've just found that to be a very good, a very good path, um, for keeping myself balanced and attempting to find a, 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 a state of grace for myself and for others. And um, I would wish that for others. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Market Minds podcast. If you enjoyed yourself, like, share, comment, and repost this podcast so that others can experience the market mind of Tangent Webster.